Welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? We got to give the people what they want, Stephen. We got to give it to them. We have to. That's what we do. That's what we're known for. And if you're a solid Clubhouse member, this Sunday, you're getting what you want, which is a training talk live of me and Steve diving Super, super, super deep on the science and application of double threshold training. Oh man, did you just did you just mention the thing that's getting all the hype in the endurance world? I just mentioned the thing. The thing is, and we're gonna pick that puppy apart for about probably it's scheduled for an hour, but I bet she's gonna go for two. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. I just want to set the stage here and people are going to be like double threshold, but you know, okay, I hear it. I've read this article on let's run or what have you. Let me, let me remind people of this. Okay, oh, oh people. Steve about to flex. <laughs> See, let me remind people. Okay. Um, maybe a year ago, you can go back in the podcast. John and I released a history going in depth on double threshold bringing it all the way back to Marius Backen, to Peter Coe, to Igloy. We traced it all, okay? Recently, you know, John Galt, Let's Run, has put out an article that did, a, you know, an okay job of tracing a similar history, okay? But we were there. We did that. Now, why did we do that? Because way back in like 2005 or whenever it was, John and I... We're sitting on Marius Backen's website looking at message boards. I've got a 60-page document uh, from that time on Marius Backen's training pulled from that website where he's talking double thresholds. We go for we go back when I was in college. I was doing double thresholds. What? Why? Because I read about it. I tried them. We did. We had, we had this book that you cannot now buy, hard copy, only e-copy, called "The Science of Winning" by Jan yes. Ob- or uh, Jan o- Obricht in the swimming world. That essentially also talked about double threshold, but applied that, in the swimming lens. That's right. And I remember when John and I met, we discussed that in the early 2010s because that was the game-changing book that you just had to. You had to go find and understand the science of that. And then Canova came in after that with not quite double threshold, but he called them special blocks. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah, special blocks. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So anyways, we're telling you all this because we're going to go this deep, more deep. We're going to understand it like you're not going to get anywhere else. Why? Because we've got the decades of experience of learning it, trying it, understanding it, while everyone else is just kind of catching up. And the great thing about Train Talk Lives is therefore our scholar members only. They're once a month, and it's a live forum Zoom call where you get to ask in real time in the chat questions, get clarifications, uh, you know, and kind of guide the direction. And it's not just me and I, or Steve and I just, you know, talking in this forum like we do in a podcast. It's an interactive experience. So we, you know, leverage the brain trust of the entire scholar membership in those to talk about their experience or their questions. So you get way, way, way more in-depth learning uh, environment versus just reading a static or passive consumption article that was written by someone who 
conceptually, theoretically understands it, but never actually did it to themselves and or never actually did it and applied it to athletes successfully and unsuccessfully. Because it wasn't all easy. I mean, some of the times we did this double threshold stuff, we definitely messed up. <laughs> and uh, no one talks about that. <laughs> no, no one does. And, l- and let me tell you, I'm going to, I'll give you the hint is like, I did lactate testing with some of this double threshold and it is the easiest. And this was back in the 2000s. This is the easiest thing to mess up because, because once you go over the, over the edge, you can screw up the entire workout. And you can screw right. up days afterwards because you are left exhausted. Lost like, oh, I, I never want to feel that feeling ever again. <laughs> and, you know, I, I might pull up one of my lactate tests, which showed my threshold went to garbage because of that, because of pressing too hard on this and riding that line too close. And guess what happens? You don't get this beautiful bump in aerobic system and lactate threshold. Your body freaks out and goes the opposite direction because it's like, what are you doing? Right. So it stays it, sympathetic. It stays in that fight or flight. It stays cortisol it, through the roof. And it's just like, no. And so it's such a, such a easy concept in theory, but very, very difficult in application because it's such a fine Goldilocks balance. So there you go. If that sounds interesting to you, sign up, get on board. You'll get access. You can chat with John and I for hours and, you know, almost 500 other people, coaches who are all doing some great things. So if you want to up your learning, that's where it's at. Plus, I'll even tell you how Mike Smith uses it and applies it in his training because I got the inside scoop. That's my main man. We talk about it all the time. So if you want to know the deets from people who are actually on the inside or aka in the arena, sign up for the scholar program right now. Do not wait. There you go. Get it from the master. All right. So this week, speaking of workouts, we're going to talk about cross-country workout and troubleshooting guide. We've got cross-country coming up. We know that high school and college teams are out there putting in the summer miles, getting ready, high hopes for a wonderful breakthrough season. Teams are excited. Their you know, coaches are prepping for their preseason camps and putting their training plans together. Mm. And we're going we're gonna to take you through some workouts and some, hey, if this goes wrong, what should we do? And I think that's the most important thing is we always talk about the idealistic plan or the nice, neat, you know, progression or periodization where it's like, it's this, this week and then next week and then a month down the road and so on and so forth. But the reality is life is messy and things do not go according to plan. So I think that's what separates the younger version of Steve and I as coaches is we understood the theoretical or neat version of all this, but experience teaches you how to deal with the mess in real time and how to deal with it well, and also not freak out about it, but actually leverage it to your advantage and be able to make those audibles or adaptions right in the moment to the benefit of not only the athlete, but also the entire cross-country team. And that's really, really important. That's hard-earned institutional knowledge, as they speak, say. And between Steve and I, we have, what, over 30 years of experience in this. So we're happy to put this forward, at least our interpretation, because we don't want you to spend 30 years figuring it out. 
spend, spend like 30 minutes. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to start with actually, I, you know, troubleshooting guy. One of the places where I messed up is an early coach. And I think this is especially an early coach in the wonderful world of Houston, Texas, where we start school in whatever, September, August, September, and it's still a billion degrees out. And traditional cross-country training has us in this periodime, this periodization scheme where what do we do early? Long tempos, right? You got to put in the long tempos, especially for college. But even for high school, people say, you know, long tempos. That's what, you know, uh, Schumacher did and others. It's like, we got to nail this. And, and, or, or long runs as well. So it's long, yeah. it's like, it's the, essentially, it's like the Schum, I call it the Schumacher, uh, Wetmore hybrid model, where it's like, you need the medium long run, the long run, and the long tempo. So it's all long, 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 long and strong. Yes. So we can go, I'm going to go two different directions in this because you brought this up. So in high school, I remember reading Running with the Buffaloes. Oh, yeah. And I, and I thought, oh man, I got to go singles and a medium long run and a long run. I tried that for about two weeks <laughs> and I think I about died. Well, and the reason again is why Houston, Texas, heat, humidity, all that stuff, it didn't add up. So what my coach came up with, which, you know, was I think brilliant is instead of going long, I was running a lot of volume, but it was all split. Like, yes, we had a long run that often wasn't too long compared to how much volume I was doing. But it was all split. So I would go five and five or six and six or seven and seven. And that went against the kind of, oh, we've got to get the longer run, the volume, the medium long run, like push to 90 minutes, push to two hours. Again, as a high schooler, I was running 70, 80, 90, 100 miles a week, but it was all split. And the reason was, is my coach realized, Steve, if you split it, you can get higher volumes while still recovering. And in his words, while still walking out the door to practice and having bounce in your step. And, and, and I think that when we look at cross country, you often think of when we look at, at, we think of long runs, medium long runs, get stuff in. And there's different ways to get that volume in. This is often kind of a safer way, especially if you're looking at younger athletes, but especially if you're looking at accumulating volume in hot or humid conditions. And I'll tell you this is I carried that through with my high school and the college coaching in Houston for another simple reason is because if you look at the strain of heat and humidity on the body and cooling your body, once you get, once you get past an hour or so, it becomes immense and you're spending so much, your body's spending so much time and energy or energy, like pushing blood flow to the skin to attempt to cool it and your work capacity, your, your, uh, blood flow going to the muscles drops, like your intensity or ability to hold, hold intensities drops profusely. So my kind of rule of thumb is unless we're doing a very specific long run for a reason, everything should be at an hour or shorter and we should get out of there. And if not, then we're probably doing something wrong. 
and the way you can measure that too, right, is through cardiac drift. Like you see cardiac drift and it's like always, you know, there tends to be, Mother Nature has, for a reason, she's decided, and I don't know why, but these thresholds, so quote unquote, or time duration thresholds where it's like around 50 to 70 minute-ish range, you start to see this cardiac drift where, again, the viscosity of the blood goes down because you've been sweating. And especially in hot conditions, there's a higher demand to keep the, uh, you know, the organ of the skin cool. And then there's another physiological, you know, threshold around like 80 to 90 minutes, right? And then another one around two hours and then another one around two hours and 30. So it's like these 30 to 40 minute intervals compound very rapidly. And we now know, right? Because the, the thought back in the day was this linear, you know, like you read in uh, what's that healthy intelligent training book, um, you know, it's based off Lydiard's paradigm is single, 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 singles. And they tell you that the only way you can get more mitochondria, which is the aerobic capacity, is through long, steady, big blocks of labor and work, right? But we now know that's not the case. We now know that enzymatic expression can be augmented and enhanced and stabilized and sustained with doubles and triples even, right? So if you hit that sweet spot, you bump up the enzymatic expression through a workout of say a run for an hour, you take several hours off, you eat, you replenish glycogen stores, what have you, and then you go for another run. Well, guess what? You have double the enzymatic expression for double the mitochondrial biogenesis for double the aerobic benefit as we used to say. Remember, we were told for a long time the only way to build mitochondrial content was through long, hard running, which is not wrong, but Mother Nature has optionality, and we now know there's other options at our availability, and this, to me, is a much better way to approach it because, again, two, you don't have compounding fatigue, you don't have the wear and tear on the body, right? You get to stop, replenish, hydration, food, nutrition, and you get to stay out of that danger zone where you're like not recovering as much because you got to get in these doubles or you got to get in these big singles. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the big takeaways that I had early on. And, and I even drifted away from that in college. We did um, the medium long run and stuff. And not surprisingly, I, I kind of burned out. <laughs> yeah. that. And again, I was training in Houston, but I think part of the reason is your body as said, is, is it starts diverting more of that energy and resources to just kind of surviving instead of adapting and thriving. And we need to keep in that adapting and thriving. And one of the ways to do that is to, again, split the workload. And that brings me to another part of what I talked about earlier is the long tempo. I think early in the summer, now I can say hot and humid conditions, but I would say most places in the U.S. in, you know, <laughs> August, September are still pretty dang hot. Right? Nowadays, yes, of course. Nowadays, <laughs> yes, that's how it is. Everyone has to understand heat training now. <laughs> yeah, there's no more pockets. Everyone's got to understand it. And I, I think the key here is we often think, oh, I've got to do that eight-mile tempo or the long progression or what have you. Um. And, or even our traditional Daniels, like four mile or 20, 25 minute tempo. What I realized again, early on is similar to doubles is if we look at split 
tempos and splitting up our quote-unquote tempo or thresholds into fart licks and things like that where you what it does is it allows you to get that aerobic benefit without facing as much danger of pushing over that line and going in and digging yourself a hole and i think the longer the tempo run the more dangerous it is to push over that line and easier to dig yourself that hole, which then is really hard to come out of. And you see this all the time, I think, with if you've ever seen this as a high school or a college coach, someone comes off, you know, their first couple cross country season races, they're blazing, you know, and running much better. And then all of a sudden they start to fall apart a little bit and regress. I think that is often because they cranked or pushed those longer tempo runs or, you know, medium tempo runs in terms of intensity or volume much too hard too soon. So they think like, oh, I'm training aerobically. This is off of tempo. I'm doing great. I wait till I add the fast stuff. But the reality is they pushed it too much into this kind of like, uh, kind of, I'm adapting, but I'm really creating more fatigue than fitness. And it's going to come back to bite them. Yeah, the most brilliant collegiate coaches I know at Cross Country uh, have very simple formats and very simple, um, you know, repetition in their training. Like it's, it's essentially it's the same week or a couple weeks just rolled over today, week after week month after month, year after year. There's not a lot of variability. And what I mean by that is we don't have access, most people don't have access to Villanueva's training. But Villanueva runs the same two-week cycles year-round. It's the same type of workouts, same types of things. And what you'll see like in it, when you look at it, it one of the staples that he and Gags figure out is essentially a kind of double threshold or threshold flux type training day where it's like in the morning they're going to do a four mile tempo run in the classic Daniels paradigm, but then come back in the afternoon and do faster 300s, right? So we have this idea that was sold to us that you can't do speed until you have quote unquote endurance. Endurance first and then speed. The reality is you can mix. You can mix it and you can mix it year round. And you should, why? Again, going back to mitochondria or aerobic ability, like you want both the volume and the quality to increase concurrently at the same time, not wait for one than the other. So when we understand that, and then we go, you looking at Vin's training, you go, wait, this is genius. This man is doing a tempo run in the morning, getting that threshold hit, can spray the enzymatic expression, then doing after some recovery, nutrition, rejuvenation, fast stuff in the afternoon that is hitting the neuromuscular side, but still bumping up the quality and content of mitochondria and aerobic biogenesis. And you're like, oh, no wonder Stanford crushed. No wonder Oregon crushed. No wonder, you know, Virginia will continue to rise and be competitive. Like, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I, when I sat down and asked him, he goes, yeah, you get a two-week break after NCAA's track, and then we go right into it. And then they just start the two-week cycles over and over and over again. There are long runs on occasion in that training paradigm, but it's not what you typically see with these big, heavy hits where like you have three big, long, hard sessions with a medium long run, long tempo and long run every week. Because honestly, like, yeah, it's sustainable 
I think for a lot of collegiate athletes or even high school athletes, when there's no other demands on them academically, socially, what have you in the summertime, like summer training is easy because that's all you really got to do unless maybe you're doing like some type of job, right? But as soon as you get in the pressure cooker of back to school and all those demands, that model I think becomes very, very unsustainable because it's just too much wear and tear, not only physically, but mentally. Exactly. No, I, I think, I think again, it's, it's like finding that balance, you know, I'm reminded of um, a conversation I had years ago with actually one of the best high school coaches and teams in the country at that time, who put it to me pretty frank, Frank, he was like, well, the week before our cross country season starts, I have all my athletes just jog for that week. And we lower the volume and we just jog. And I'm like, what? Well, why? Like, you're ramping up, you're getting ready for the season, like your first high school meets the next week. He said, because often what happens is kids tend to get excited, they overcook it at the end of the summer. And I need to have something in built to kind of counteract that. So we bring things down before bringing them back up. And I think the reason I, I bring that up in the, the what you just said on the Lanana stuff is like it's that balancing approach of how do you make these pieces fit. And for so often what we've done is we've kind of gone the um, the Lydiard route where it's the uh, the weekly long run and the like long singles and the, uh, you know, the running with the buffaloes wet more hit these things and that does work in certain paradigms but in a lot of different paradigms or places especially when you look at heat humidity training age like durability and adaptability which often we you know as our good friend and mentor you know Vern Gambetta likes to say is people are like to tell us once is people aren't working on the farms anymore like you don't mm-hmm. have you know, Peter Snell lifting, <laughs> lifting things to get, you know, natural strength before actually becoming an athlete. Right. Yeah. yeah. And when we don't have that robustness um, in our kind of modern society, what we have to do is we have to, you know, shift and change things, which often means that like we tone down a couple of, you know, tone down the big spices until they're kind of ready for that paradigm. Yeah, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's really interesting, right? When you look back at history and you look at today's modern training paradigms, it used to just be training was, you know, a part of your day. And it was like essentially anytime fitness, right? Because you're out there uh, being very robust, as everyone would say, doing naturally challenging physically things, whether it be on the farm, whether it be more active, right? Just playing in the streets, bike riding, walking, less cars, like less passive transport, all that type of stuff. We discredit that like people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to walk to the grocery store or I'm going to bike ride there rather than drive a car. Uh, you know, and simple things like that are, I'm going to, you know, a great example of this, like Larry Bird, right? hurt his back as the most, you know, highest paid, you know, first millionaire paid uh, per season NBA player. He hurt his back during the off season when he was putting down cement in his own driveway in Indiana. Like this, to imagine LeBron James being like, yeah, I'm going to cement my driveway as quote unquote an off season activity 
or Bill Walton, right, saying, all right, in the offseason, I'm going to bike the entire Oregon coast and not view it as training, but just as like, hey, I'm doing this just for me. And the year after or the year before they, the Trailblazers won the 1977 NBA title, like no NBA player today would undertake any of that, right? <laughs> because now it's an appointment mindset. Now it's like by appointment only do we do physical things. And now we have to go, oh, we had this appointment of intense physical labor that was really planned out, really structured. And now we have to do all these, you know, highly engineered recovery modalities afterwards. That wasn't the case for basically ever in human development and evolution. All right, this is a very new phenomena. You know, we're trying to exploit mechanisms that are bazillions of years old. So we got to remember, like, robustness is there. And we weren't just made to have one appointment of physical uh, expression per day. We were meant to be physically active and physically expressed throughout the day with fluctuations and variability. And when we come back to that, we go, yeah, the easiest way to approach this is the sledgehammer approach. One big run, one big hard effort, and then, you know, chill out for a couple of days. It does work. We're not debating the merit of that. We're just saying there's better ways where you get more effective bang for your buck, more um, sustainability, and better enhancement of competitiveness and fitness. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're getting at is like there's other models here. So let's go into a couple other, we've kind of talked about it on a high level, but let's go into a couple other workouts um, for troubleshooting. And I'll, I'll start off with one that I've used many times, going all the way back to when I coached high school athletes, is especially in the high school season, what, what often would happen is an athlete would kind of get a little flat during the race or just get a little sluggish. And you'd have that, that, that race where they just kind of looked a little off, you know? And my go-to always was after, after that would occur is what I, I called like a short controlled aerobic effort. So maybe 10 minutes at what I'd call marathon pace, right? Which doesn't mean much for a high school kid, but it's essentially, right, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it's essentially steady. It's like, just be steady. Don't press at all. Just a little faster than your normal distance run and just do that. And we go 10 minutes of that, you know, maybe the Monday after that hard or that race that didn't go well. And then we do hill sprints. And the reason for this is I often think that what occurs, especially with high school athletes is we when we get into the season when we're always pressing for adaptation, whether that's on the aerobic side with tempos, whether that's on the longer reps, whether that's pressing, you know, the speed side with like quote unquote anaerobic, trying to get that lactic uh, up, all that stuff. I often think all that stuff makes us kind of lose our pop and bounce and make us feel flat. So hill sprints are great because what they do is they give you that like pop in a back pop back because what you're doing is you're running fast while not creating fatigue because you're take you're keeping it short and you're taking long rest in between reps so all you're doing is training your body oh yeah i remember to how to activate all this fast twitch muscle fibers that i've just kind of neglected because i've been racing long doing long stuff pressing the kind of aerobic or um, 
you know, fitness side of things. And I've always found that if you do that on that Monday or Tuesday, by that Friday or Saturday, athletes are popping and looking like they're race ready again. Yeah. For I, I had a very similar realization, Steve. It's like for, for me, it was hills and stairs. Like when I was a head cross country coach at one of the local junior colleges here in the, you know, Portland, Oregon area, um, I would during the preseason, we did once a week hills and stairs because we had this park called Mount Tabor, which has these long set of stairs as well as hills. And I also had like the high performance West women do that too. And I realized like with the junior college kids that we did it once a week for about six weeks and they came out stunting. They came out like, oh man, we're running fast, like kicking ass, like having good times. And then we got away from it because the drive to the location was too much with class schedules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they did it flat. <laughs> and it's like, wait, nothing else really changed besides the stress of school, which we buffered for and anything and the training it, we just didn't have this this weekly stair and hill injection in and in cross country right hills matter because you run on you know an undulating course what i didn't realize at the time that i now know with stairs is essentially was like wickets for runners because it was creating that pop of that bounce it was creating that reactivity in the stride that we talked about last podcast and stairs is a great way to do that and it was the location was prime because you could oscillate between several flights of stairs and then as long of a hill as you wanted 10 seconds 20 seconds you go up to a minute nice steady incline crush gravel perfect environment perfect scene and you could pulse back and forth between the two so you get kind of that reactivity and then applied reactivity on this hill. Now, with the high performance West women, we were able to do that kind of throughout the, the fall and the season. And that helped spur a lot of, you know, their capacity to like, you know, get second to at the time a Terrence Mahone coach, BAA, full professional athletic um, association club at club cross country. like in the mid 2010s, like those club cross country championships were for real. Cause like we had real pro teams coming in and running them in the fall. Right. And Danny had the Brooks beast. Like it was not, you know, Fluffy'sville USA. I mean, so they responded really well to that, the women and also the collegiate athletes. And I saw this really interesting. Now looking back on it, unprompted experiment of what happened when you kept it in the training model consistently and when you had it in period in a periodized fashion early on and then took it out and what i found was exactly what you uh your experience was too steve is they just had less pop and bounce in their stride and just they didn't have the kick they didn't have the the oomph that was there in the beginning because it kind of evaporated with the lack of reactivity training and also the hill sprint training Exactly. I think there's that nice balance of in cross country, we actually often, you know, get it, go too far in one direction and you have to have things that kind of pull it, pull it back. And that's why the, whether it's hills, whether it's hill sprints, whether it's going, doing some cruise 200s or the Allen, the Allen Webb 200, 150, 120, or whatever you have it drill. Is there something where it's like you get a little bit more reactivity in it without the fatigue? And it reminds you of how to run fast. And the other thing I'd say for coaches is one more way you can look at this. And again, I mentioned this with my high school coach is when they get out the door, do you see that pop in their step or do they start looking like their mechanics kind of trudge along? 
And often one of the things that you can see is how far in the hole we are is, is what I like to call is how much of a warm up does it take to get someone to feel good, poppy, et cetera, running fast. If it takes a lot of warm up to do that, then that tells you that your natural kind of poppiness, you know, reactivity is very low. And, and, and like you might be able to get away with it when you give them extensive warm up. But if you keep pressing that down, it's going to be harder and harder to bring it out with the thorough warm up with drills and reactive stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to naturally lift that in workouts at some point. Yes, this is important point. I'm glad you brought this up. When you look at Bob Schulz training and Igloy's training, you know, the godfathers of flux and, uh, you know, now we know mitochondrial, you know, superness, as we like to call it, like, the, what was their warm up? 10 minutes, easy jogging, a mile and a half at most, and then right into fresh runs, which is 100 meters at 3k pace with an immediate deceleration, turn down, and then restart, right? About 20 seconds on 20 seconds off. Every single day, twice a day, year round, right? Why? How? Like, I know runners that's like, oh, I need a 30-minute warm-up today to get the aerobic engine kind of moving and grooving, right? And they just feel like tired or, uh, you know, brain fog or whatever. Those are clear symptoms of chronic, you know, overtraining starting to express. Because if it takes more than 10 minutes of easy, just slow, like, general jogging to kind of like get the quote unquote, as we say, colloquially the blood flowing and to feel that poppiness and back. That's a clear sign that something's up, but yet we take it for granted because we reinterpret it as, Oh, we'll get three miles in as a warm up, And then we'll get three miles in as, and we start counting these miles. And you're like, wait, wait, the activity is not to run more. It's to run to get better, more better. <laughs> <laughs> and so we misinterpret like as a way to sneak the miles in these longer warmups. It's like, honestly, unless it's like a super cold, cold day, 10 minutes is like it. And if you need more than 10 minutes, like significantly more, we're talking 20 minutes, 30 minutes, et cetera, to get warmed up that, that as a coach is an alarm bell saying, Hey, this person might be flirting with overtraining syndrome. Yeah, exactly. I think it's one of these things where, again, is you can use the warm-ups as feedback. And I think, again, I was our good friend and mentor, Vern Gambetta, who um, also, and Dan Paff has talked about this, who essentially said, like, the warm-ups are your, like, check-ins. Like, they tell you, like, where the athlete is and where their body is. And, like, that is your movement, quote-unquote, movement screen, is how they are getting through the warmups and whether they are looking good and poppy and, and excited or what have you, or if they're, it kind of takes some time. And sometimes it's going to take some time, but that all gives you feedback on where these athletes are. And the reason I think this is so important is because when we look at cross country season, often it's like this, it's like this balance point of push and pull. And if you, if you push too far and get them into this hole, it becomes harder and harder to dig them out. So what you have to do is realize that, yeah, we might push a little bit into it when we're pressing adaptations in some, some direction or some manner. But like if we go too far, then our season quickly you know, can unravel. 
Yeah, and that's why you know I'm a big advocate of an eyes-on warm-up where your coach has eyes on the athletes when they're warming up. Often, too often times, right, we send people, okay, go run and then come back, you know, in cross-country. Go run, jog away from the, the workout site, do a loop, do an out-of-back, go on the trails, et cetera, and then come back, and then we'll then do the workout on site. And the coach doesn't see anything, doesn't see Get, or she doesn't see any that feedback, right? So it's nice to have, like, say, what I call pre-run exercises before you actually run, which is your cal- your warm-up catalog, right? So whether it's agility ladders, hopefully it's wickets, um, as we talked about last podcast, and the importance of that, like, that lets you know if, you know, that chatter, that dialogue. Like, when I was, uh, again, going back to the, you know, junior college had coaching uh, time, you know, our pre-run exercise or pre-activity exercise was like a series of hurdle mobility drills and, um, you know, dynamic stretches as well as like some acceleration on the track, right? Because we had this great facility where, you know, you had the track and then you had like all these loops and stuff you could do on dirt or grass and crushed gravel. And then they could go do the, you know, two mile uh, warm up jog after that, right? But what allowed me the opportunity to interact with the athletes, check in with us, see how they're moving, see how they're navigating the, the barriers and obstacles of the hurdle mobility at the time, you know, it's before I understood wickets and the import of them, um, you know, see how they're navigating the dynamic warm ups, see how they are drills, see how they were navigating the accelerations, getting feedback, just generally checking in, watching their persona, watching their affect and demeanor, and understanding, okay. Hey, yeah, they're ready to go today. Or uh, I might have to like, you know, alter this session for that, you know, person a little bit because they're like, coach, I stay up all night finishing this paper. I got three hours of sleep. And, it, you know, the, the, the wear on their face and their body is demonstrating that, right? And that's sensitivity and sophistication about how we're judging and how we're interpreting the signals, both verbal and nonverbal, those athletes are giving us, is really important to watch and give presence to. But if we send them away for 20 minutes to get warmed up, then come back, we miss that. And so I think it's really important to have and develop in your catalog kind of a stable series of pre-run activities where as a group, as a unit, as a team, this is just what we do for 10 to 20 minutes before we actually go and start the running portion of the, the, the training session. Absolutely. I think you're spot on there. Um, I think, you know, taking another direction on this workout and troubleshooting guide, I think the other thing that I, I, I learned early on is have some sort of standard kind of, I'm a, I'm a big believer in workout variation, but I love having some sort of standard workout that, isn't, uh, I don't know, isn't uh, traditional, but gives us a feedback on a system we care about. And I'll give you an example here. Again, going all the way back to my high school is we had this five mile hill loop that had zero splits on it, meaning you had no idea where mile one, two, three, or four or five was. You just got your five mile time once you came out of the woods at the end. (laughs) Um, Love it. but I loved I loved that because my high school coach would use that as like a rough barometer. We'd run it, you know, kind of not super hard, but relatively hard, kind of controlled tempo, 
you know, a couple times during the season. And that would give us kind of feedback of, oh, that felt really easy to run 27 minutes or 26 something or what have you. Or that felt really hard to run 28 minutes or what have you. And that gives us a gave us an idea of like, oh, here's where we are kind of relatively controlled aerobically on things. And I know a lot of people do this with like state mile repeats or what have you. But the reason I love I love the idea of doing it on something where there is no no feedback on is it prevents the kind of or it doesn't prevent, but it minimizes the kind of like I'm going to race to prove that I'm faster here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you have to kind of do is when I was working with uh, the University of Houston college team, what we, we'd often have is we'd have these um, these we'd use like alternations in this way where the kids didn't know like where the split was, meaning we might do thousand on 600 off or something like that, but it wasn't exactly a thousand on and it wasn't exactly 600 off. What I'd look for is the total time at the end when I knew it was, you know, four miles of work or five miles of work. And, and, and that kind of gave me the feedback of like, Oh, okay. This is kind of where we're at on this high end aerobic ability, because if not, um, they wouldn't be able to run this pace or this fast or like do it in this controlled manner, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's the, the key thing, right? We can use these ver- nonverbal cues and nonverbal data and feedback based on how they're expressing um, fitness or lack of fitness or fatigue or what that fitness fatigue quotient ratio looks like in the moment to drive our decision making and as real time data. Yes, you can also use more subjective qualifiers like heart rate, lactate, you know, you know, nowadays, right, with all the different straps, you know, you can use whatever blood, you know, oxygen levels, blah, 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 HRV, etc. But a lot of it comes down to, you know, we have the idea that we've been lost without these um, subjective data points for millions of years. It's kind of when you go back and look at history and read through a lot of the coaching texts, uh, training texts, athlete firsthand accounts of how they trained and got better, especially like in that golden era of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of it was this, um, you know, we can say intuitiveness, but this just uh, empirical understanding about hard, easy, fast, slow, which, you know, three quarters effort, one quarter effort, very opaque and non-definitive. But that uh, language made sense to a lot of these coaches and athletes. And it drove drove the feedback and drove decision-making. Like Igloy, right? Igloy would be there on track side, always, always watching, listening, like very, very attentive. And, you know, he was a crazy man by a lot of our standards because it was never the same workout. It was always individual adaptive periodization in the moment. Getting, he knew the direction of stress and stimulus he wanted to apply to make the athlete better. He knew how to do it, but it all depended on what they expressed, rep in and rep out, set in, set out, and that dialogue, right? And he never wrote anything down, right? It, you know, it drives a lot of people who are type A uh, crazy. Because it's much easier to be like, how many miles did we run a week? How many, what was the exact pace? We count every mile as it's the same weight, the same import, this and that, right? And, you know, when you look back at history, you go, wait, Lydiard's 
100 mile weeks was 100 miles of sub T threshold running, 100 miles of that. That was that was the recommendation. And then you had another 30 to 40 miles of what we call jogging. So then you look at it, you go, oh, they're running 140 miles a week by our track everything model standard. But to them, that wasn't important, the jogging. It was um, not important. So we didn't even track it. And that's what we have to understand is when you have that ability as a coach to decipher what data points really matter and are worth putting a lot of merit in that will drive your decision making. And then also to deciding which ones kind of matter, but don't really matter. That then helps give you better clarity about, okay, here's where I index a lot in terms of feedback and decision making. And here's where, yeah, it's just kind of like a sprinkle of this or that, or a sprinkle of my interpretation on what's actually happening in the moment or the general direction that athlete's trending. And then it just enhances more rapid decision making because less noise, more signal. You know, I think what we're getting at here on this kind of troubleshooting guide is like have a decision-making framework and points of feedback and emphasis on what allows you to see that. And that could be using HRV and lactate or whatever have you. But I think like don't over-index on something because it spits out a nice shiny number that tells you something instead like make sure that like the data you're bringing in you know translates to something that is actionable and meaningful and i think often what we see whether it's in watching the warm-up whether it's in having some sort of workout that gives you some feedback as i said one of the reasons i love alternations for this is because because the steady part becomes your feedback mechanism because if I do, and I'll get a slight tangent, but if I tell someone to do four by mile with three minutes rest, four minutes rest, whatever it is, often what happens is even if their fitness is eroding a little bit, they can still get through that, that four by mile session because they've got three minutes of rest that allows their, you know, their uh, creatine phosphate system to restore, their anaerobic system to restore a little bit. It allows them to use a little bit more of that to compensate maybe for a declining aerobic system or what have you. So they get through the workout, they crush the four by mile and they say, oh man, I don't understand why I'm not racing great in the 8K because I crushed my mile repeats. Like this indicates I should be running 24 minutes and I ran 25 minutes. Well, often what happens is because you've got that rest. Yeah, you can you can kind of like fake it. Or like you're you you can compensate on more ways than you can in a race. But if we look at using that flux training in terms of alternations, you can't compensate because you're not giving those uh, creatine phosphate, anaerobic system, et cetera, that recovery in, in, the, in between to restore. And what happens is instead of doing that four by miles repeats, if you do 800, uh, 800 hard, 800 kind of steady, what happens is they often get through the first, second, and sometimes third 800 hard. But you see that steady, the flux part, the it just starts to, the pace starts to drop. And they go from steady to a little bit slower to a little bit slower. And then often what you see is the, the telltale sign is this, is that transition from the hard 800 to the steady 800 
instead of going from a smooth decline, slow, which is what you see when athletes can handle it, it goes to a hard stop into into a jog, into a, oh, crap, I've got to get back on pace on this steady because this is a point. What that tells you is it gives you the feedback that, oh, man, we're not able to handle this back and forth. And this is why I love flux training so much because it gives you a little bit more information on where that weak point in the system is and, you know, whether you're headed in the right or wrong direction. Yeah, it's so often, right, we can, one of the biggest troubleshooting things I see is, you know, we, we want to prove fitness and workout or win workout, so to speak, and make the workout be successful to give the athlete confidence, right? But if we're not embarrassing the athlete, as Steve likes to say, and their system in workouts or training sessions, we're not really getting better or we're not reducing with the cracks or weak points are in the athlete's fitness and ability. So then we go on with false confidence on race day where it's like, oh, I crushed these four mile repeats. I'm good to go. And you're not good to go. <laughs> you're not. And that's the, the hardest part is it's like, how do you balance the, and man, really it's not about balance, but manage the athletes and the human conditions need to feel confident and successful in the moment and like they're making progress. Because no one wants to just go into work after work and just get creamed and be like, I suck at life. I suck at running. What am I doing? And you're like, no, it's okay. We're just embarrassing the body. Like, no, that's not sustainable. But you want to find that spot where they're challenged or every now and again where they are really exploited and do get embarrassed and kind of have a blow up workout, which is totally fine. But let them know that's part of the managing and progression process of getting fitter and better versus this idea of we have to just feel good, we have to feel confident. Because it's it's so it's so funny. I'm reminded of, you know, this last weekend being at the US Championships, right? Everyone's going into the US Championships, uh, you know, at the ends are at Hayward at the professional level with high hopes, expectations, and a lot of positive narratives in their mind, right? And they have these ideas, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Yeah, my coach says I'm ready. Like, no coach is going to say you're not ready going to the U.S. championships. (laughs) No, no one's going to say that. But yet so many people aren't ready. And what we mean by ready is, especially in the distance, there's hard physiological realities that you have to meet head on in your preparation Otherwise, it's a it's a it's a false start or no go once you get in that uh, competitive uh, environment. And what I mean by that is like in the eight hundred, right? So like in the eight hundred, you got to be able to roll and then not decelerate and then come back and do it again and again, right? With through rounds, that's a, a hard physiological reality. In the ten k's or five k's. You got to be able to, in heat and humidity, or that's not humidity at Hayward, but in heat, because of primetime television, be okay at what seems like a moderate pace or moderate threat tempo, and then be able to rip it the last 1K to 400, right? You need to be able to close off of 10, you know, 14 minutes of hard running with, you know, for men, a low 50, with for women, like a low, it's a sub 60. Those are hard physiological realities. Same thing in cross, right? Depending on the environment, depending on the course. Like if you're training for, say, a championship type race where it's like NXN, NCAs, your state meet, what have you, 
you don't get the luxury of going out nice and easy and then like filtering through this humongous championship field as you might at like your you know invite or local dual meet you gotta go out ripping to get to the front because you gotta pass all the jokers quote unquote or all the people that are in your way to establish a position maintain the position and get in the race where you're actually for each man or woman on your team they're actually racing so you have to understand how am i going to have these kids go out at mile speed for maybe the first two minutes of the race and then quote unquote settle in and yet still be able to on the run as we're racing and competing rebuffer clear lactate get ready to then have a big final thrust or push in the middle so these nice little like hey long rep fast rep workouts with long rest to make us feel good you know, it kind of does the athlete a service, in my opinion, because the crucible of running championship cross country or, you know, cross country in general is very, very tough. And we have to prepare them for those not only physiological realities that they're going to meet head on, but also the psychological ones that are coupled with it. And I think that's a, a good point maybe to end with is like what we're getting at here in this this cross country troubleshooting guide is is two things i think is be clear on your sources of feedback and how you're how you're looking at them and then setting them up in terms of your warm-up in terms of the workouts you're doing right do you send athletes off i'll say this at houston you know what for the majority of the warm-ups guess what they did uh a mile to two mile jog around the track you know on the outer lanes of the track partially why uh, that way i could look and see where they were going were they allowed to go off yeah once they if they they wanted to and got mind-numbingly bored of it but mo- most of our warm-ups were around the outskirts of the track the opposite direction so understand where you're getting your feedback from how you're setting your your athletes up to get that feedback to give that feedback your workouts as well and then the other part which i think you nailed there is like, are you preparing for the crucible and the test, right? Meaning, are you preparing, it does your training match or prepare them to take on the demands that they're going to face? And as you said, in cross country, often what happens is we prepare for the demands of running a fast 5K that is relatively even split and controlled, but we don't prepare for the craziness, especially at the high school and NCAA levels of getting to the state meet or the NCAA championship and your first 400 is sub 60, right? <laughs> or whatever it is. Like, yeah, you know, and I, I remember the first 10K I ever ran in cross country. I was like, okay, 10K, here we come. Alistair Craig was in it and took it out in like 420 something. Yep. I was like, what is that. this? <laughs> this is a cross country course. What are you doing, man? But like, that's what happens. So you have to prepare for the demands that you have to face, not just the nice kind of even split ideal race that doesn't occur. I'm going to end with a little tangent because you said something that I want to address there, sure. Steve, is like the idea that you can get bored as a competitive athlete with your training environment just does not make sense to me at all. You know, it, sure, if you're a club intramural recreational athlete and you want variety in your training environment and setting, by all means, I get it. You're not 
preparing or practicing to win. But the truth is, right, in athletics, whether it's extracurricular, in the scholastic environment, or those, you know, uh, club setting or the professional setting, is if you are playing the game to win, then you're practicing to win, right? And that requires repetition, familiarity, but doing the things you need to do to get prepared. The thing is this, right? That I, this is one of the secrets about professionals. Steve can attest, I can attest. We've seen it firsthand. They don't get bored of the training environment. Here's a good example. Like, you know, Bowerman Track Club, when they were Portland-based, would run thousands of laps around Hollister Trail. Thousands. Talking day in and day out. And that's a 1.5-mile, 2,400-meter, like, crushed gravel loop that Nike made specifically for them, right, and that no boredom no boredom like no complaining oh same same environment blah 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 al webb and i before that trail was made we found this crust gravel trail by a light rail max um that was by the nike campus it was a half mile each direction he and i would do 10 mile runs going back and forth on a half mile crushed gravel loop because alan really liked his crushed gravel and at that time nike didn't have it they only had the, the chips and the uh the grass grass loops. So Alan found this crushed gravel loop that he liked, or not even loop, the out and back. And we would do out and back 10 mile runs. <laughs> you want to talk about mind-numbingly boring, but that's not the calculus, right? It's not about is this environment training environment exciting? It's like, does this get the job done to make me better? So when I show up on meet day and I'm ready to race, I'm ready to race. So, you, you know, you know, I'm going to add one in there for the folks. We'll go way back. But if you look at my high school training log, during the school year, I mark where we ran. And during the school year, both morning and afternoon, because we had morning cross-country practice and afternoon track or cross-country practice, we were restricted to running on our school campus. So if we stretched it and did all these weird figure eight crazy loops we could get a mile and a half loop out of it so five days a week morning and afternoon again my senior year during track season i didn't go under 80 miles a week until the state meet five days a week that was almost all around a mile and a half loop on our school campus making random circles to extend every piece of grass on that on that plot of land and the point is, like, I think the same thing there is like, yeah, it kind of sucks, but you just kind of do it because like, you don't get bored of like, this is the process it takes to get better. Right. The football player does not complain about practicing on the same field every day. The baseball player does not complain about practicing on the same diamond. The basketball player does not complain about practicing on the same court. Swimming, man. Swimming. Swimming. Stare, yes. at, stare at the same line. <laughs> For hours. <laughs> hours. So, yeah, you know, like that's one of the things, right? What I love about running and coaching is you get to coach people from all walks of life, but, you know, you can coach people who have fitness oriented goals in mind. You, know, you have to coach people who have competitive oriented goals, and you might coach people who have a little bit of both. But the reality is, like, I've learned as a coach, you have to be very clear from the onset what is the orientation of their, their what drives them and then be able to coach towards that. Steve and I obviously coach about the competitive mindset and competitive coaching side of distance running. Nothing wrong with, you know, I, and I do coach, you know, recreational runners who are using it as 
a you know uh, a tool for personal excellence and health and wellness and that is awesome but when we talk about competitiveness and competing and we talk about preparation part of it too is just an offloading of novelty or or new um inputs so that hey i just know the same loop i just know the same environment there's nothing novel or new here and i actually get to focus on the things like maybe form or technique or how my body is processing this type of intensity variation with a workout or what have you right i mean since the pandemic going on what three years now i ran in the same place the same you know over at you know the the trails on the Nike campus and the Twalton Hills and Rec Center park right there uh, for three, three plus years. <laughs> have not got a board. Have not been like, oh, yeah, I need to go expand my horizons and go back to like, you know, Forest Park or go out here to this trail or travel so far for some variety. Like, it's not bored. And, you know, it's at least 10 miles, you know, on the daily. Just same loops, whatever. No big deal. Because, again, it's just – easy, convenient, safe, it gets the job done. And I'm a pig in mud, right? And that's, I think what we want to address too is you, we as coaches have a very unique opportunity to be teachers. And part of being a teacher is demonstrating and modeling what it means to be successful in a competitive arena because we use competition to augment the development exercise and expression of human excellence and part of that is going to be teaching kids how to win teaching athletes how to win not only win like in preparation not only win in competition but win in the game of life and it's our job as coaches i think to teach winning and this is why we we steve and i made the scar program right where we talk about all this stuff on the podcast is different ways to help you teach your charge how to win And you got to define what winning is, quote unquote, for you. It can be the actual winning, the championship, the trophy, the medal, the prize, whatever, but it also can be bigger than that. And when you understand it's bigger than that, then those interpretations and dialogues you have with your athletes go to another, an added dimension, as they say. And that added dimension, that's where the great ones hang out. That's where the Mike Smiths hang out. You know, you hear Mike Smith's extra dimension. Rob Connor over at UP, you know, good friend. He has another dimension. And that's what we want to figure out and interpret in our own coaching practice, I think, because that's going to set up our pupils for so much success, not only on the day and the season, but also for the rest of their life. Love it. So there you go. That's what we think about cross country, getting in information, you know, preparing for the demands of the race. If you enjoyed that, again, check out the Running Scholar program. We're going to go deep on flux training this week, so don't miss out. And And also, uh, also, also, a new thing we started this summer that's getting a lot of momentum is the workout talk live streams. So we have training talks, and then we have now these workout talks. Training talks are this big monthly catch-all. We get together on Sundays and chop it up. The workout talk is for people who are in the clubhouse only. And it's kind of like a mini version of the training talk lives. We cover one set, you know, topic. So, you know, next next week is going to be max speed, speed development for runners. The week after that, stable gains periodization for runners. The week after that, the science of moving from the middle. It's scar driven about what topics we want to talk about. And it's just, we get on and we talk very, very loosely 
for about an hour versus the training talk lives are a little bit more formal. But the nice thing about it is you interact with coaches from around the world, <laughs> from all walks of life. Like the more interaction we get with our peers, the better we can share information, the better we can get, because that's the real, really how knowledge dissemination and transfer happens. So join the SCAR program. Steve and I are not just saying this for our own health and wellness of our pockets because we're not charging that much. It's less than a dollar a day. Seriously, pennies on the dollar. But it will accelerate your ability to become and keep being an amazing coach and or um, athlete if you're training or want to be a coach because everyone says it's the best continuing education they take. And you know, you, you actually get to interact with real life human beings who are out in the arena, who are out in the field, doing it day in and day out and seeing what's going on. So be sure if you haven't, do it because you will not regret it. I promise. There you go. There's the guarantee. There's the promise. All right, everybody check it out until next time. Keep coaching.